following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, had this to say to them. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. What I want you to notice in this text is Paul's not really talking about sin here. He's talking about those things that the book of Hebrews talks about when it says that we should lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily besets us. But notice that it has, alongside sin, weight. There are cares and concerns and things in this world that are not necessarily sinful, but they are things that could end up being unhelpful to us, and they can, in fact, be enslaving to us unless we're aware of it. By the way, I thought our second song this morning was pretty good for our keyboardist. Um, You were enjoying yourself there, sir. And because you were enjoying yourself, so was I. Thank you for that. (laughs) The keyboardist is always tucked in the back, aren't they? But um, just outstanding stuff this morning. I really enjoyed that. (laughs) Um, 1 Corinthians 6.12 is talking about this. And I want to, um, we're going to concentrate on this idea of enslavement. Believe it or not, it's a, a big theme in God's story. The biggest event found in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, outside of the creation of the world is what? What is the event that keeps getting repeated time and time again and God tells the children of Israel to remember? What's that pivotal moment? It is the Exodus. And then before God gives the children of Israel the Ten Commandments, where he says, thou should have no other gods before me, thou should not make unto thyself any graven image of anything in the heavens above, the earth beneath, the waters under the earth, thou should not bow down thyself to serve them. He utters these words, and God spake all these things, saying, I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The funny thing about all of this is as soon as they were delivered from the house of Egypt, from the house of bondage, the land of Egypt, the house of bondage, it seems that the children of Israel were determined to place themselves in bondage again, again, and again. There was this kind of willfulness of, let me be enslaved again. Believe it or not, that's true for Christians. We get free, but there are these things that want to enslave us, and sometimes we just leap into them willingly without even thinking about what is going on. I want to talk to you about hyperpalatable food. And you're thinking, yeah, and this seems all very confusing. It'll all start to make sense, hopefully, if I've done my job by the time we finish. What has food now got to do with where you were clearly leaning to, uh, leading us towards before? Well, hyperpalatable is a compound word. Hyper means excessive, palatable means tasty. Hyperpalatable food is excessively tasty food. Now, these sorts of foods have been deliberately manufactured and created by human beings, food scientists. And they are designed to bypass bypass the normal desires of the human palate. You see, your mouth is filled with between 2,000 to 5,000 taste buds. Each of those 2,000 to 5,000 taste buds has about 50 to 100 taste receptor cells. 
So when you eat something, a chemical reaction is going on that's sending electronic signals to your brain, which is releasing chemicals that make you feel good. And what these food scientists have realized is we can make food hyperpalatable and addictive so that you'll come back and want to buy more of this food. This is commonly known as takeaways. They infuse these foods with high levels of... This is true, ladies and gentlemen. These multinational corporations are very smart. It's not by chance that you desire to go into McDonald's every time you drive past it, or there's this kind of yearning to go in there. It's because your brain has become acclimated to the idea that in there, it will get these good chemicals released by lots of fat, salt, and of course, sugar. This makes these foods irresistibly, irresistibly appealing. But of course, we know that they're linked to overeating and the obesity epidemic. And this is because the data suggests that hyperpalatable foods are capable of creating an addictive process in the human mind. What these food chemists are doing is they're creating foods that are not always good for us, but we feel compelled to eat, such foods as pizza. Sorry about this, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to get a bit nasty now. (laughs) Pizza, chocolate, chips, biscuits, ice cream, french fries, cheeseburgers, soft drinks, cheese and bacon. Oh my gosh, (laughs) stop salivating. Um, Fried chicken, and of course the the ubiquitous, the Happy Meal. It's, It's amazing how it's called the Happy Meal. Why? Because once you start consuming the sugar from the sugary drink, you get the sodium and the fat from the burger and from the chips, These chemicals, after the taste buds have done their bit, these chemicals get released and you start to like them so that you want to consume them more. That's why when you open a big block of chocolate and you say, I'm just going to have the top row, all you're left is with the wrappers. Or a big bag of salt and vinegar chips. I'll just have a handful of those bad boys. And before you know it, the bag's empty and you're thinking, who came and ate them all? You did. Because they're hyperpalatable. You know they're not good for you. You realize that a bag of chips is basically carbs all the way through. When you look at the back of the contents, it's going to say about 90% carbs. I've not, but it's something like that. It's just pure carbs, carbs, and carbs, all, all loaded in there. Now, these hyperpalatable foods set off this reaction that releases these chemicals, and this conditions the brain to crave them, which is why me simply mentioning those foods has started a craving process within you. And you're already starting to plan your lunch. You think, when can I get out of here? How long is Adam going to be? (laughs) Um, Are you enslaved? Have they created some kind of vicious cycle that your brain now craves these sorts of things? The last time I drove past a fruit store, I never thought about going and buying a head of broccoli. (laughs) Why is that? The broccoli has virtually no salt. It's got very little of uh, the uh, fat, and it's got only about 1% of um, sugar. Less than a percent of that head of broccoli will be sugar. A Moro bar is about 60% sugar. All right, let's get to our topic. Techno God, distracted faith, is the subject I want to look at today. The internet is the single most important technological development of the last 40 years. It's perhaps bigger, as I suggested last week, than Crocs, taco shells that stand up by themselves, and the incredible fidget spinner. Of course, it's a close call. But the internet is used for all kinds of amazing things. It's a cornucopia of delights and information. It has communication tools in it where we can communicate over vast distances electronically. We can do that via Skype. We can do it via email. We can use it like programs like Outlook. 
Entertainment. It's just a wealth of entertainment. Netflix, Lightbox, iTunes, Spotify. You can buy lots of things on the internet. Have you ever tried that, ladies and gentlemen? Amazon, Trade Me, Mighty Ape, Fishpond. You've got news and weather. The New Zealand Herald. I did think about putting that in the entertainment section. The Telegraph, the Washington Post, Fox News, Al Jazeera, social media. None of you all have heard of any of these. Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter. Of course, there are educational sites like Wikipedia and... Okay, financial services, Wall Street stocks, online banking. Now, you can see where the internet's kind of goes to, ladies and gentlemen, what it concentrates on. And if we look at a statistic of the world's people, it's incredible that for a technology barely 40 years old, just four decades, its penetration into every aspect of our life is incredible. Let's look at these statistics. The world's total population is getting close to about 8 billion, of which about 55% are living in cities. We talked about this last week. But the penetration of internet users is about 4 billion people, that's over just over half percent of the world's population, is hooked into a technology that's only 40 years old. The number of active social media users, 3.1 billion people, a 42% penetration of the world's population. And then the unique mobile users, that's your smartphone or your tablet, 2.9 billion people, for roughly 40% of the world's population. This is amazing for a technology that was born in 1983 with all of these goodies. And let's face it, my job is vastly different than it would have been for a historian 40 years ago. The ability for me to access archives and documents and write things and get information that would have taken me hours, if not weeks, to find through letters, through phoning people up on international toll calls and the expense that would have been is incredible. I can contact an academic anywhere in the world and get an answer to an important question within a few minutes. It's an incredible thing. With all these goodies, when we spend increasing amounts of times in the digitalized world, we know that the average person in New Zealand spends six hours a day on the internet. That's on average. So some of you are doing really well, <laughs> a lot more than that, and others of you are doing a little bit less than that, but most of us are fitting into that six hours a day, and of course it depends a little bit on your job, definitely if you're in an office place of work, you might find yourself more um, than somebody who might be out on the road, but you're commonly connected as well. Now when we think about the internet as a technological device, as Christians, we're kind of naive, in fact not just Christians, general society, we're quite naive about our use in the internet. Um, and we tend to look at it as a neutral, a neutral technology. In fact, we often think of all technology as being neutral. In other words, the technology itself is not good or evil. It's how we use the technology. Have you ever heard that expression? It's not good or bad. It's just people use it for good or bad purposes. That, there is a truth to that. But it's a very simplistic way to look at all of this. Marshall McLuhan is a Canadian academic who specializes in this area. And this is what he said. He said, our conventional response to all media, namely that it is how they are used that counts, is the numb stance of the technological idiot. So this idea that the internet is either good or bad simply depends on how you use it is the numb stance of the technological idiot. Now, if you're like me, there's nothing worse than being called an idiot. 
Right? You don't want to be called an idiot. I don't want to be called an idiot. So what does he mean by this? You see, what Christians normally do when they take a technology like the internet, they draw a line. Good, bad. <laughs> on the good side, we're organizing an event for youth this Friday. We've pasted it on Facebook. I'm getting married. You're invited. It's on Facebook. I'm having a baby. It's on Facebook. We're doing a social event or a family get-together. Here's a lovely photo I took of my granddaughter. It's on Facebook. It's for educational purposes. I'm catching up on the news. I'm accessing my textbook for my university course. They all fit into that good column. On the bad column, the dark side of the force, pornography, money laundering, terrorism, trolling, being a bully. Right. Now, that is about the extent of how most Christians think about technology tools and particularly the internet. We've got the good stuff. We've got the bad stuff. This we keep away from. This is acceptable to do. But Marshall McLuhan's saying that is the numb stance of the technological idiot. What does he mean? He's saying that technology and tools, regardless of the content or what you do with them, change us. Let's have a look at our spade. So this spade then could be used to move gravel. Good task. On the other hand, it could be used to dig a grave for a person I've just murdered, therefore being implicated in the crime. Bad Adam. Naughty Adam. Good Adam. Bad Adam. Okay, and that's what we'd normally say with a shovel. It's a neutral tool. It just depends on what you're using it for. On the contrary, Marshall McLuhan is saying this. Whether you are digging a post hole for a fence, or whether you're digging a grave for a person whose life you have taken, the shovel is changing you. It's changing your hands. They become calloused. It's strengthening your arms with its repetitive use. It's causing you to have broader shoulders. In other words, this spade is transforming me regardless of the content of the material I'm using it to remove. Can you understand this? And that's what Marshall McLuhan's saying about the internet. Regardless of whether you're looking at the good stuff in this column or the bad stuff in this column is irrelevant to this argument I'm going to present to you today. It is that by just the dint of using the internet, even if it's just for all only virtuous causes, he's telling us it's going to affect us for good or for ill, because that's what technology does. All right, it's a basic truth, but if you've got that, you are ahead of the curve of about 99.9% .9 of the population of this planet. If you can understand what Marshall McLuhan is saying here, you have already climbed the ladder and you're close to the top. You see, we assume that it's essentially neutral. But this ignores the fact that the medium of the internet and how it works and how it interacts with us changes us regardless of what we are looking at. And in this case, it changes us intellectually. I'm not going to look at what happens to you when you sit in a chair for long periods of time. The fact that you might end up with oos or carpal tunnel syndrome from the keyboard or all those sorts of things. I'm going to talk to you about how it physically affects the morphology or the shape and the working of our brain, that gray matter. Now you're starting to see a link, aren't you, between hyper-palatable food. Let's see where this little journey will take us as we jump down this rabbit burrow with Alice. 
Well, what does the internet do? Well, the internet, um, I like what John Corkin says, we shape our tools, we make the spade, we make the internet, but thereafter it shapes us. It determines our life habits. It determines the, what we do every day. It determines the course of our actions by the dint of creating that technology. The internet, whether on tablet or phone or computer, delivers precisely the kind of sensory and cognitive stimuli, repetitions, um, we've got our spade in here. The internet, whether on our computer or tablet or smartphone, delivers the kind of sensory and cognitive stimuli, repetition, intensive, interactive, addictive, that have been shown to result in strong and rapid alterations in the brain and its Functions. You're saying, Adam, could that really be true, that my brain is changing because I'm spending so much time accessing the internet? Listen, it's not what I say, it's what the cognitive scientists say. They say that the longer we spend on the internet, our brain actually changes, just like when we overconsume too much of that food that is absolutely filled with salt, sugar, and fat. Why is this? Why is it that all these scientists are now saying the internet, although a great technology, has the potential to make you and I slaves and addicted? The first is this, the sensory nature of the internet. It engages three of our senses, unlike reading, which engages just one, or listening to the radio engages just one sense. The internet is a combination of these trio of senses, sight, auditory, and touch. As we tap the keys on our keyboard and drag our mouse clicking right and left buttons and effortlessly spinning the scroll wheel, we are a steady stream of inputs to our visual, touch, and auditory cortices, that's portions of the brain, Audio cues come and arriving emails and sound files and visual cues flash across the retinas as we navigate the online virtual world. This is kind of like an old-style emporium. If you've ever been into one of these shops, you go in there, and immediately, all of the stuff that's in there, something catches your attention. And then you look down to the next shelf, and something else catches your attention. You turn another way, and, some, and before you know it, you're only planning on spending five minutes in this type of store. Two hours later, you come out going, where did all the time go? Sound familiar? It's got alluring items. But the internet, of course, is very different to this. It's not static displays, but it has hyperlinks, icons to be dragged and dropped, virtual buttons to be clicked, pop-up ads to be followed or dismissed. It's a Disneyland of delights for your senses and for your brain. Truly, ladies and gentlemen, if you've ever been to Disneyland, it's captivating. It's overwhelming. There's just so much going on. There's lights, there's music, there's people, there's sound, there's motion. Everything is being engaged. That's why I would, I'd hate to live there, ladies and gentlemen. It would be a terrible place to live there. But of course, the internet is causing us to live in a place where there's constant distractions and delights that trap us. What ends up taking place of course, is that we can become addicted in this. And this is another reason for this. Not just that it engages these three senses, which is unusual for lots of technology we use, we also find that it has quick responses and rewards that you don't get from other types of media. You know, if you watch television, it's very static. Um, um, I'm trying to think of the word here. It is very... Anyway, it'll come to me. You're sitting down, and you're receiving it, and it's very passive. 
It's passive. You just receive it, and it just floods into you. But what happens with the internet is you do something, it responds. And the funny thing is that your brain loves that. It loves it. I do something, and that responds. Hey, you, hey, hey, guys, you just clicked a button, okay? Let's not get too excited. But your brain loves it. I don't know why, but these responses, psychologists point out that the high-speed responses and rewards are what are known as positive reinforcements that glue you to the internet. That's their words. It, it's the glue that holds you in. When we click... A link, we immediately get a response. And a Google search in the blink of an eye has the answer. When we send a tweet, we get more followers. We write a blog, we get more comments. We post a picture to Facebook, we get a like. And this is what one commentator said. It said that what turns us into lab rats, constantly pressing levers to get tiny pellets of social and intellectual nourishment. Oh my gosh, how pathetic. How pathetic that a 50-year-old male like myself can post a picture or a comment to Facebook and I get a like and suddenly it boosts my self-esteem. But you know what happens? I only got one like. When am I going to get my next like? Half an hour later, I check. No one else has liked it. And then a notification, another like. I'm a success story. I've made it in the world. And then I see someone else has more likes. Now I'm depressed. But at least I've got more likes than so-and-so. Now I'm happy. Then I'm depressed. It's pretty sad, isn't it, when you think about it. You know what's taking place? They tell us, the cognitive scientists tell us, that when that like appears, that thumb up or the, the little heart, um, you get those little red hearts of likes. You know what takes place? That dopamine and serotonin you get this micro push of these drugs in your brain and you start to become addicted to it. That's what's going on. This is not just true for people who engage in a lot of social media, but gaming is a real trap. I can tell you that as a person who does game. It's a real trap. Gaming is addictive because it offers immediate responses and positive reinforcements, plus it is visually stimulating, and it is a competitive environment. It is a hyper-palatable food for the brain. You've got prizes, you achieve goals, you work with people, you've got this immediate interaction in this incredibly rich environment. Long gone are the days of the 1980s when I would shirk off from school and go down to the local pizza parlor and play Invaders. Space invaders. And you have these little creatures going across the top. And then as they got lower, and you're trying to shoot them all. If you look at an interactive environment for a kind of a first-person shooter or some kind of game like that, it is so rich, visually rich. It's got you. And you think, I'll just play half an hour. Two hours, three hours later. And then someone calls you for dinner, and you reluctantly, what's happened? <laughs> it's that addictive process has taken place. I know this is pretty cutting to the bone, isn't it, folks? I already feel it in myself. It's, there's something that's going on here that you and I say we're going to spend such a short time, and before you know it, you've spent hours. Could it be some compulsion? Do you know that these multinational corporations have specific teams designed to create addictive processes? They're honest about it. You see, in social media, things like Google or Facebook, they have teams that are trying to get you to spend more time on their programs. Why? Because the more time you spend and the more clicks you do is the more revenue they have. 
So in other words, they are engaged, just like the people with the golden arches and all of these fast food places, of creating a hyper-palatable environment so that you stay there as long as possible so they get as much money as possible. They don't love you. They don't care about you. You know what they do with their kids, the people who run those multinational corporations in California and Silicon Valley who work for these major corporations? You know what they do? They don't send their kids to schools in which they are filled with technology. They send them to schools where it's all been stripped away because they know in the real world that they get plenty of technology and more than enough and the last place they need it is in schools. But you know what we do with our schools? We fill them with the technology. Why do we do that? Because people tell it's good for the school kids and then of course corporations sell the technology to us. Can you see how this works? But the people who created all this realize the addictive process that's going on and they say, my kids don't need that. They don't need all of this material. This is why the American Academy of Pediatricians state that your children, this is not some left-field crazy institution, but the American Academy of Pediatricians state that young children should not be exposed to television and the internet in huge quantities or at all when they're really young because it what? You'll never believe what they're about to say. It hyper-stimulates and adversely affects the developing brain. And data seems to be suggesting, and we're only just starting to get all of this, and if you're a teacher, you already know what's going on with young kids that are entering schools these days compared to just even a decade ago. The data suggests it's linked to ADD, autism, aggression, obesity, and possibly dyslexia. Wow. Once we become hooked into the internet via our computer, Smartphone in our pocket, it's hard to deny the impulse to check the latest news feed or Facebook wall. Recent research shows that we spend every year 81,000 times a year checking our smartphones. 81,000. That means 4.3 minutes of every waking moment of your life. On average, people feel a com- com- a com- a compelling to check something on their smartphone or their internet or their social media. Wow, 4.3 minutes. That means as long as the service has been running, some of you have been thinking, can I just sneak away somehow to turn my phone on and I could pretend I'm looking at the Bible (laughs) or I'm taking notes. Hey, I get the same thing. You get that nervous thing. I haven't checked the internet in a long time. What's been happening? Probably something major. No, of course not. Nothing major has been happening, but there's this compulsion to do it. This is particularly true of the smartphone, which means we have access to the internet at all times of the day and night, no matter where we are. And it's only a recent invention. Before, when you wanted the internet, you had to be at home, connected to um, dial-up. But now it is everywhere. Everywhere. A survey of 8,000 Christians found that 54% of respondents admitted to checking their smartphones within minutes of waking up. Of 74, 74% of these said they would do it before any spiritual disciplines like their devotions. The most popular drug is Facebook, where a billion people every day check their Facebook page. My question to you and I is this, what are the spiritual implications of this? What are the spiritual implications or possibilities of this? Now this is not to say the, you shouldn't be using the internet. What I want to be, and what I hope all Christians want to be, is we want to be discerning. You cannot avoid it. In fact, it's a a blessing in many ways, like a lot of tools and technology. But we need to be cognizant and aware of the potential pitfalls of this type of technology. 
if we allow it to run rampant and rule our lives. You create something, and what did our man say? Before you know it, it's controlling us. Is the internet controlling us? I'm going to give us three spiritual ramifications, uh, possibilities. Of course, our addicted to distraction has, has three possibilities or three potential outcomes. The first of this, and this comes from a, a great guy called Tony Ranka. He said, it can keep us from doing the things that we are supposed to do. That doesn't sound that spiritual. <laughs> it is. It, it stops us from doing things we're supposed to do. Um, work responsibilities, home commitments, things like, and these are hard things. I don't want to do a deadline. I don't want to meet a deadline. So what do I do? I get online and play a game, or I check my emails, or I go look at a YouTube video, and I've got, I'm subscribed to a couple of things, and they send up notifications saying there's a new 15-minute video there. Before you know it, you've you're lost and you're getting closer to your deadline and you're not going to make what's happened. You see how captivating it is. We've become addicted to these distractions, even things like deadlines, laundry piles, school projects are abandoned for tinkering away in the virtual world. God wants us to face up to our work demands, not escape every 4.3 minutes to social media. That applies to you and I, whether you are a brain surgeon or a university student or a high school student. You know, we've got to meet our commitments, our real-world responsibilities. The second thing is that God has called us to love our neighbor. But in a way, when we turn our phones on, the person right next to us is ignored and great needs are ignored. When our soul is tied to the distractions of the web, how can we meet the needs of people that are around us? I recall a story of a missionary, um, a, a, a minister a few decades ago, and he, had, he was telling the story of these Chinese uh, underground church members that had gone to California. And they were visiting California, and the American Christian hosts were showing them the sights of Southern California and took them to Disneyland. And as they were walking through Disneyland these leaders of the underground church in China became increasingly distressed and upset, it appeared, or um, even tearful. And one of the Americans, the Americans thought, well, perhaps it's because it's overwhelming, it's too exciting, it's so amazing being here in the home of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. But through an interpreter, what, here's what they discovered, that these church leaders realized, this is what they said, they said, you will not come and help us. And the Americans said, why, why won't we come and help, help you? Because you have too many distractions. A world so full of distractions that we can't love our neighbor and see the needs right next to us. We're on a continent across the Pacific Ocean. We'd rather be wedded to these distractions, blissfully caught within the small parameters of a small, you know, a few square inches of screen and great needs lie unmet because of that. The third thing I wanted to talk about as we bring it to a close here is that the digital distractions keep us from thinking about matters of eternity, matters of real spiritual value, rather than if you're going to get the highest score or whether someone's liked your picture. Um, 
the real spiritual matters, things that have eternal value. It keeps us from thoughts of eternity. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician and philosopher, he said this. He said, I've discovered that all unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. Now, what does he mean in modern language? He's saying this. He said, where does unhappiness come from? It's when men sequester and women sequester themselves away in a closet. They, shut, they get themselves into a, a chamber or a room or a bedroom and they turn off all technology and there are no distractions. And he says, guess what happens? What arises? Unhappiness. And that unhappiness arises because suddenly that individual, cut off from all distractions, starts to think about things of great import and matters of the soul. It's very much like a funeral. You know, if you go to a funeral, it's one of those few times where you and I as human beings have all other distractions moved away and we have to concentrate on one thing, our mortality. Yes, of course, the memory of the person who's passed away. But if you're like me, you start to think about your mortality. And when you're in that bedroom and everything's shut out, you start to think, what happens when I die? Why did I speak so harshly to my wife? Am I a good father to my children? Am I a good sister to my brother? Am I a good Christian? Am I doing what the Lord wants me to do? Do I really love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? And before you allow yourself to make serious change and consideration and allow God to do something, 4.3 minutes has passed. Well, it's gone. The moment for you to think about it was gone. The moment for the Holy Spirit to speak was gone. The moment for you to do an inventory and a calculation and a change and phone up a brother and sister and say, hey, I'm having problems in this area. I need your help is gone. I remember Santa and I one time as we draw to an end here, we went to Hillsong, London. And the church was kind of like a concert. It's got these two layers to it. And Sandra and I went up to the top level, and it's dark like a concert. And as we were sitting there and the music was playing, I looked out along the long row of the curve on the top balcony area. And what did I see? I saw people there, but I also saw lights. And people had their phones on. And you could, it was very revealing, a light here. It was like a constellation of stars of what? distractions in a church service. And by the time I got through the music, it was time for the prayer time. And the minister came to the front, and he gets up on the stage, and he's got in his hand a fistful of cards. These are prayer cards. My marriage is falling apart. My wife is going to leave me. I found out that I have cancer. I'm losing my job. My kids don't love me and ignore me. These are real concerns of people. And he said, we're going to pray for these. And he's a good Pentecostal. So he said, I want you to stretch out your hand. And so I stretched out my hand to pray for these. He didn't say what was on those cards, but he had a fistful of them. He says, we're going to pray for these people corporately because we, can't, we don't have time to do it individually. And as he did that, 
I reached out my hand to pray, but there was this young lady sitting next, standing next to me who through the entire service had been scrolling through her smartphone. It was quite distractive. And as her, she had one hand stretched out towards these cards, she was flicking through the screen. Now, she may have had a good reason for it, ladies and gentlemen. She was flicking through the screen. You know, the Bible says, the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The distracted prayer of a young woman availeth, or young man, or older man, availeth what? The distracted prayer. It stops us thinking of eternal things. Peter Crave puts it this way. He said, For if we had leisure, solitude, free from distractions, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. The funny thing about all of this, ladies and gentlemen, is that the internet itself is not necessarily sinful. But are the distractions keeping us from doing what God wants us to do? Douglas Grutenhaus put it this way. He said, it's difficult to serve God with our heart, soul, and strength and mind when we are divided and distracted. The internet, either on our computers, tablets, or smartphones, can amplify the most unnecessary and frivolous distractions as they deaden us to the most significant issues of our soul. Gosh, that's hard, isn't it? But it's true. Like the hyperpalatable food of the internet, it works the same way. It has the potential to cultivate an addiction to distraction. The irresistibility of the flickering image, the immediate response, the steady stream of inputs to our visual, touch, auditory, and auditory cortices is intoxicating. What did Paul say? He said, all things are lawful for me. But, I, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. This is the question we're going to end with. Has the hyperpalatable internet made me a slave of distractions at the expense of doing what I should? Loving my neighbor and diverting me from thoughts of eternal consequences. Lord, we thank you for your word. You freed us. You're the great emancipator. Lord, we don't want to fall into any enslavement. We thank you for this great technology and tool that is oftentimes such a blessing to us in our employment and even in our spiritual lives, a great vehicle for the spreading of the gospel and the good news. But Lord, let us be discerning Christians wise, Lord, about the potentiality for our own enslavement. In the name of the Lord, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.